Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Starobin, and welcome to America and Beyond on the New Books Network. My guest today is Michael Mann, who is the author of the book On Wars. Uh, Michael is a distinguished research professor of sociology emeritus at the University of California, Los Angeles, and also an honorary professor at the University of Cambridge. He's the author of the award-winning book series, The Sources of Social Power, and of Incoherent Empire Fascist, and The Dark Side of Democracy, Explaining Ethnic Cleansing. Welcome to America and Beyond, Michael. Thank you. Let me begin with just, if I could ask a little bit on a personal note, you state in your the preface to the book that my fascination with war owes nothing to any personal experience of it. Family lore tells me I was born in a hospital basement during the last World War II German bombing raid on Manchester. So what is it that um, can explain or help us to understand your fascination with war, which is cl- clearly so powerfully in- informed the, the work you have done as a, as a scholar? I'm not sure I know the answer to that. I obviously have a fascination with uh, darker subjects, you know, like fascism, uh, ethnic cleansing, uh, and now war. It was, in a way, unfinished business from the sources of social power, where though I emphasized military power as an important part of human development, I didn't talk much about what militaries do in the sense that they kill people. And so I thought I would contribute an article or two about battles and about the causes of wars. Uh, And that grew into a book. Mm -hmm. And on wars, uh, I think it's important, as you say, uh, to notice that that is a plural in the title, wars. Uh, on War would be, I think, probably a different book. What led you to that title? Well, the title On War has been taken already by von yeah. Clausewitz. Well, you know, we could always, um, yes, we, we can reprise these things. I think there was a strategic purpose for you, no, in On War? Yes, but uh, von Clausewitz, he only uh, wrote about the wars he understood, which was the wars of the uh, late 18th and early 19th century, and nothing to do with colonial wars, no colonial wars then. So I just wanted to make clear in the title that I was dealing with a lot of wars, a lot of wars across history and across the world. So I covered China, Japan, uh, South America, North America, Europe, um, and so it's, uh, it, I could have called it On Diverse Wars, but I don't think that's quite as neat. No, I don't think that would have passed uh, muster with your publisher. Did you mean to arrive at a general theory of war? Well, I'm, I'm a little skeptical as a sociologist about general theories of society, general theories of uh, war, whatever. I wanted to write about um, uh, the causes of war, who takes decisions for war, uh, whether wars provide uh, any kind of uh, gains, whether war is a rational activity. Um, And I did find a certain uniformity across wars. I uh, found, of course, the technology of war, the the organization of war has changed enormously uh, over human history. And we have weapons now that can destroy the planet. Uh, And the the casualties in 20th century wars are higher than any other. Um, But at the same time, I did find some of the same processes at work um, so that Um, Wars are mainly irrational. That is, uh, they're they're not decided on in a very calculative way, and they they only rarely produce good results. Yeah. Let me stop you there, actually, because that that 
triggered me a little bit on the irrational because here I have to say I, it was sort of drilled into me as a student in a master's program at the London School of Economics in the early 1980s that realism, capital R, was a powerful way to think about uh, war. And this, I think, presupposed a certain degree of rationalism to the enterprise of war. And I have always felt that some proper skepticism could be applied to various realist ways of looking at war. And I think it's also important to say that they're not all the, the same, as, as we well know. But, but it felt like your critique of realism was a powerful um, theme in your book that you wanted to get across. Yes. Uh, in, in terms of the results of war, one has a, um, a fairly neat uh, possibility of uh, deciding whether uh, aggressive wars pay dividends. And at various, in various studies uh, conducted on wars since 1816, this is the Correlates of War Project uh, data, uh, on average, aggressors win 50% of the time, meaning that 50% of the time they don't. That's not so good. That, that, that I mean, imp it's not so imp impressive, I should say. Yeah. It lessens the rationality of war if you it can't predict whether yeah. you're going to win or not. Of a course, miscalculation. a lot of miscalculation, a lot of over-optimism. Um, that's the most uh, dominant feature of uh, deciding we'll go to war. Is they're over optimistic? Uh, over optimistic, uh, not 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 a a kind of uh, I guess it would depend on the war, but a kind of a, you know maybe a bloodlust or some kind of emotional driver. I was just about to come on. Okay, I'm sorry, I cut uh, it off. It's not just uh, over optimism. It's the role of emotions ideologies, domestic political uh, 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 issues and conflicts. Um, and so obviously uh, rulers go into wars believing they're going to win them. But that's for uh, uh, their overconfidence comes from a variety of reasons and emotions like hatred, uh, ideologies like... Uh, defending um, capitalist democracy against fascism or communism or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, religion, you, you have. Of religion, yeah. Uh, revenge. Yes. Uh, revenge, yes, that's going all right, right at the moment. We will There's get to him. We will get to that, I promise you. I think yeah. we will get. I wanted to establish some of the un underbrush here for your... Uh, analysis. And I was also struck, I mean, in this vein, just continuing in this vein, uh, you emphasize the irrational, but you do, you also say, I don't know if this is a but, but you do say uh, towards the end of the book that, quote, the best predictor of new aggression is success in previous aggressions. So that sounds rather like an expression of logic. Um and there is a certain logic in the end of that, because if you go go to wars uh, because you've had success in previous wars, but this time you don't have success, uh, then um, uh, there is a tendency for for uh, rulers to be more cautious about future. Um, mm. So, uh, just a kind of intuitively arrived at judgment about things in a way. Yes. So let's try the case study, if we can, of Israel-Palestine, which of course is dominating the headlines as we speak uh, here towards the end of uh, October 2023. So there was an essay uh, written about uh, 20 years ago by the philosopher Michael Walzer for the Journal of Dissent. Uh, and it's called The Four Wars of Israel slash Palestine. Four of them, he said, are now in progress. The first is a Palestinian war 
to destroy the state of Israel. The second is a Palestinian war to create an independent state alongside Israel, ending the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. The third is an Israeli war for the security of Israel within the 1967 borders. And the fourth and the final of these wars is an Israeli war for greater Israel for the settlements and the occupied territories. And his core point is these four wars are simultaneous and also continuous. So here we are now again in uh, 20 years on or so. Uh, and I note that he uses wars plural as well. And I thought of your title. How does that fit into your own assessment of what we're now seeing in Israel-Palestine? Now, those four wars uh, indicate the ambivalence uh, of both of the sides. That is, they, uh, as ideal types, they can either, um, you know, um, either take the, the extreme or a, a moderate position, and they they hesitate between them. It's um, it, it's slightly different between the, the two uh, sides because. Um, Israel is formally a, um, a, a democracy, and if we uh, accept that there's a certain uh, element of ethnocracy in that, in the, that Arabs do not have uh, an equal uh, share of the vote to Jews, um, and on the Palestinian side, we have to accept that groups like Hamas are by no means the same as the Palestinian population as a whole. Um, but there is a can continuous interaction between them. Uh, this is not a war in in which there is a simple aggressor, um, not usually anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are uh, there is interaction, so that the recent period has seen a lot of Israeli land grabbing of Palestinian land, causing indignation among the Palestinians, and increasing the uh, popularity of an extreme extremist response. This happens a great deal in war, in war that the, um, the actions of, uh, of one side alienate and strengthen the, the, the military aggression of the other side. Kind of a vicious uh, cycle. That's right, yes. Um, but of course, in a way, you know, the extremists on both sides are kind of dancing together. They both think that they benefit from the other's extremism. So, um, uh, 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 but this is a, a a war which is not a simple interstate war because there isn't really a Palestinian state, or at least not one with any power within among Palestinians. Um, it's a kind of a bit of a civil war, uh, uh, certainly pitting an advanced military power against uh, a uh, not at all advanced war. Yeah, it's a real disparity in, in military resources broadly defined. Is there any parallel? I mean, it feels like just from the headlines, we're in kind of a metaphorical Cornucopia. I mean, there are so many different analogies offered. I mean, colonial wars, Algeria. Um, you know, just it just comes. It almost seems endlessly. And you have made this kind of vast survey going back to antiquity of wars and the nature of war. Is it your feeling that there is truly a unique? character to the Israeli-Palestinian war, or are there useful um, analogs? Well, uh, every case has a degree of uniqueness. I'm not trying to fit cases into a, a rigid overall uh, theory, um, but uh, that said, uh, there are parallels between this case and other cases. Uh, the the colonial aspect of it, the co colonial settlers aspect of it, um, produces um, a uh, set of uh, comparisons possible with other forms of imperialism, and through the through the ages. I mean, you know, Roman conquest of a 
of a province is normally followed by a, a revolt a few years later. And uh, this has uh, elements of that, though this um, does have the, the oddity of, though it's not exactly an interstate war, it, it is an intercommunity war. And the Palestinians exist collectively uh, to a limited degree in a way that rebels to empires generally do not. Yeah. Well, I wonder, you know, as a sociologist, maybe this is a, a side point, but uh, again, in, in the study of international relations, it's we're reminded, you know, all of the time that, you know, wars between states, states exist in a kind of anarchy, a Hobbesian world, and there's no supranational force, and on and on. But you are uh, coming at this subject from the perspective of a sociologist, and I had the feeling in reading your book, and this might be an example, that the existence of the state, the not the state, I mean, it's it's not the essential aspect to your thinking about war. Well, um, it, in one sense, it is. I think that one of the arguments I make is that war is not part of our genetic structure. It's not uh, either of human beings in general or of men, though men have dominated war. Um, uh, and indeed, for most of the period in which humans have existed on Earth, there was not war, and that's about 90, uh, over 90% of the time before the emergence of states and social, and social classes um, and uh, gender stratification. And it, it is after that that um, serious wars uh, begin. And so um, the state, at least off one side of a dispute... Uh, is that because this, it was the state that, you know, almost in a kind of... Max Weberian way was able to monopolize the uh, the resources of uh, and the legitimate exercise his word legitimate of of violence. Well, no, because plenty of states that have not been centralized in that way that Weber imagined have gone to war. And one thinks of feudal, mm-hmm. where yeah. King, the king decides. Uh, an English king decides to go to war in France, and he calls out his barons. The barons don't have to come, and in fact, he has no idea how many are going to show up. Yes. So there is, that's, there's a difficulty of rationality in that kind of context. But let me say that there are some wars which work for the aggressor. And I, there are two kinds of those uh, which uh, I identify uh, one is what I call sharks against minnows. So when the United States uh, invades Grenada or Panama, as it did, there's no doubt what the result will be, and the result is what the United States wanted. And you can see that um, across time and space. Uh, uh, but the exceptions to that are where someone thought they were the shark and the enemy was the minnows, and it turns out not like that. Yes. And, and Ukraine has that. Ukraine also has the second uh, form of, um, of rational war, which is a proxy war. That is, the United States supplies the Ukraine with an enormous amount of uh, military hardware, uh, without losing a single American soldier, yeah, and so it, that it, that makes sense in terms it, of yeah, right. Uh, and I actually, I'd, I'd like to uh, to go to the uh, Ukraine, the Russian-Ukrainian war as a a second case study as well. But I don't think we've quite exhausted Israel-Palestine. So let me uh, ask you about in your book, which was published before this latest outbreak of. Uh, of war, of violence uh, in Israel slash Palestine. You also write, religious differences are central drivers of these conflicts because both believe they have a divine right to the same land. And I wonder if that point does not sufficiently come across in a lot of the coverage that we 
see. Um, the emphasis sometimes is on the colonial aspect and so forth. But can you speak more to that? I mean, here we are in the 21st century and these, you know, religious differences are, remain and convictions remain very much alive, do they not? Yes. Uh, this one has a, pe a peculiar uh, drive to it in that the two sides have a very ancient claim to the same land. Um, now, of course, plenty of, um, uh, of, of uh, Israelis and plenty of uh, Palestinians um, have a more pragmatic view of things, but there is a significant proportion of uh, um, Israeli Jews who believe that this land is their land by divine right. And chosen the, people. Yes, the chosen people. The same time as the Palestinians say uh, the Jews only arrived recently, this was our land for centuries and centuries, and and you say Palestinians, but also in the book you say a Arabs uh, that Canaan uh, was promised to Ishmael, the elder son of Abraham, uh, yes, from whom. Uh, the Arabs, or I guess the Muslims, are claiming descent. So it's a kind of a twist or a variant on the quote unquote o Old Testament version that the Jews embrace. Yes, yes. Um, of course, both uh, groups are Semitic. Uh, yes. Um, and uh, in certain ways, they have the same. Um, would someone call it ancestor worship? Uh, <laughs> um, uh, yes, I mean, one is tempted. I don't know if I should even wade into this, but you know, per Freud and the narcissism of small differences, is that a, f a, a fuel for hostilities? Yes, but uh, <laughs> these are not small differences. Yeah, no, I know. Well, the, it, I meant I mean both being Semitic. Yes. Yes. Where you have a dispute, um, which is the, the, the sides claim um, a legitimate right to the same bit of territory, uh, that tends to produce the more emotional uh, um, uh, tendencies towards war. Uh, and uh, it's very difficult where both sides believe they are righteous. And righteousness is something that is um, it is uh, hostile to pragmatic mediation and that kind of uh, yeah. stuff. Well, that might yeah. give us a good... But there are other things uh, about this war which are interesting. Uh, one is the different kinds of atrocities. For, for most of human history, uh, battles consisted of... Um, people striking the person in front of them, uh, slashing at the other's body before he can slash you. And that involves a certain ferocity. Um, and so that's a ferocious war category, which was dominant until the appearance of guns and then bombing and uh, plane, airplanes and the like. But they brought a different kind of war, a different kind of mentality, that is of callous war. That is where you're not aiming at a particular person, but you are, for example, dropping bombs on a city, and uh, this will produce a devastating number of, uh, of deaths, of casualties. And of course, the 20th century, um, we, all the major powers, engaged in this uh, uh, massive bombing, you know, the, the Germans, the Japanese, the Americans, the British, the, the Russians. Uh, and so callous warfare became the dominant what form. Now, the response, the UN response to that was to say that this uh, was um, a war crime. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, deliberate bombing likely to kill uh, large numbers of people uh, was a war crime. But of course, no, no one pays any attention to that, and neither the United States nor Russia in recent years 
uh, have paid any attention yeah. to that. Well, so in this, but in this war, we have one side practicing a kind of ferocious war because it's all they can do. They don't have, they don't have artillery. They have a few rockets, but they don't seem to do much damage. Um, and so they rely on physical combat. Well, when you say I'm not, I'm not a, a, a excusing at all the conduct of those uh, uh, Hamas. Um, Invaders of Israel who committed the most terrible crimes. But I'm saying that on the other side, callous warfare is the moral equivalent of that. Uh, well, the atrocity, yeah. I mean, but atrocities, I mean, and let's just won't be clear on that point. I mean, we saw on October the 7th, the atrocities included the, and this has been <clears throat> rendered on film, on video, captured by the uh the fighters the invaders whatever you want to call them of you know the, the the murders of you know babies and and children and elderly plus the kidnapping so it's hard you know a massacre in other words it's it's hard to see how that in some ways how that even can fall under the category of war per se well um it's parallel to uh, in, in in history the, the typical case of a a city that resists an invader, uh, but the city is eventually stormed, and then the soldiers are let let loose on the city. There's a horrific description by the Jewish historian Josephus of, of the uh, Roman uh, storming of Jerusalem in AD 70-something, um, and uh, he sense that the Roman soldiers uh, slaughtered uh, everyone they they saw until the streets ran with blood, and that, that those rivers of blood uh, managed to uh, quench the flames caused by their destruction yeah. of property. So chilling, <laughs> I uh, yeah, in that rally. So uh, no, I, I I I am saying that they should both. But both of these should be prosecuted. Mm -hmm. I hear you. Um, yeah. Well, let's see if we can pivot, if we can, to the Russia-Ukrainian war. And I think it could offer possibly some interesting points of uh, comparison with this Israel-Palestine conflict. One is this notion of one land. And I was recently, I should say, in Ukraine. I was on the ground there for eight days. I was not on the battlefront, but I certainly talked to quite a number of people about the war, and I very much understood and, and grasped the sense of a traumatized, you know, society and people, and got a very palpable sense of what war can do to the psychology and the souls of people whose land uh, have been invaded, and whose friends and family have suffered death, and whose nightly experience in places like Kiev is. Uh, to not to know whether there will be a kind of a fireworks show in the early hours of the morning when Russian missiles and drones are attacking, and one hopes that uh, the Ukrainian anti-aircraft fire will destroy them. And you know, an 18-year-old young Ukrainian woman told me when she leaves her friends after seeing them on any given night, she sometimes wonders whether she'll ever see them again. So that kind of atmosphere. If one pulls back the lens, one sees that um, Russians, or at least Vladimir Putin, sees Ukraine as part of a greater Russia. I mean, this idea of a Ruski Mir, a Russian land, which is also linked with the Orthodox Church in Russia, which also views Ukraine as an extension of a kind of remit of uh, Russia in a sort of theo theological or spiritual sense. And uh, this is also brought out in, in language, where Putin thinks that he is protecting Russian-speaking peoples. But there are plenty of Russian speakers in Ukraine who do not regard themselves, who regard themselves as Ukrainian. And you write uh, in the book about this under the heading of Putin's revisionist war in Ukraine. And you also know that there is a kind of 
uh, well, George Kennan, although he died years ago, school of thought about how NATO's expansion uh, and promises of expansion helped to fuel this conflict, or at least gave rise to Russian insecurities. But the sense of the revisionist war in Ukraine, can you go deeper into that in terms of how this particular conflict um, came into being? And it came into being. The, 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 one should say that the history is is very varied. Sometimes Ukraine or parts of Ukraine were part of Russia, as sometimes they weren't. Uh, Ukraine has been an independent state for several decades, and uh, so and uh, that there were significant. Uh, Issues in the eastern Ukraine uh, between uh, those who were pro-Russian and those who were pro-Ukraine, where where well, Russian-speaking yes. Ukrainians no. are, are concentrated yes. in eastern Ukraine. Yes. Well, of course, the one effect one effect of Putin's war uh, was to turn many of those Russian speakers towards Ukraine rather than towards towards him. Um, but this is. Uh, this is a war, um, it's about territory and it's about sovereignty. These are um, non-rational aspects of war. That is, what, what Putin is trying to do is to re-establish the Russian Empire, all of the Soviet uh, domains, and he has had a great deal of success doing this. He brought Chechen to, rule, to order, Georgia to order. He's got the situation in Belarus and Kazakhstan where he's propping up the unpopular regimes. And so um, the, the, the goal of re-establishing uh, the Russian Empire seemed to him to be possible. And this is a period of, um, this is a period in which the US has suffered uh, defeats and there's no mood to intervene again, where there's a new German chancellor, Brexit, etc. Yeah, so he had that kind of soft... And, and just to, and to underscore what you're saying, I think that it, it falls into your rubric where you say the best predictor of new aggression is success in, in previous aggressions. And yeah. Respect but, to Russia, but just to make one more point, with respect to Russia, you had this sort of very short-lived invasion of the former Soviet Republic of Georgia after uh, NATO in, in Brussels extended a uh, unspecified date of time promise for Georgia and Ukraine to join NATO. And then Putin went in. So he might have felt, I thought of that when you write about the best predict predictive new aggression, that this might have led to the miscalculation that Ukraine might go the same way in the Kremlin's perspective. But the other factor uh, was the uh, underestimation of the Ukrainians, which is not just a kind of uh, pragmatic judgment. Uh, it's based on racial stereotypes and on the inferiority of the Ukrainians, such that they can only be ruled by fascists. They're not really capable of uh, civilized rule. So these uh, elements in his thinking, and that of many Russians uh, who look down on Ukrainian, um, uh, is, is, is mixed in with the other things. So it's a typical war in a sense in which the motivations are mixed. There are some rational calculations, but there are also uh, emotional and ideological issues. And of course, he wants to be, he's made it explicit, he wants to be Peter the Great. Um, and um, so uh, there's a kind of, uh, you know, he's doing it partly to be... defeated this the Swedish, the Swedes, in, in uh, an area that is now part of sovereign Ukraine in a pivotal battle as in, in terms of establishing a Russian empire centuries ago. Yeah. So... Um, it's this um, uh, mixture of motives, uh, the part rational, part irrational, that leads rulers uh, towards mistakes. 
though, of course, for Putin, uh, as for many rulers, he doesn't factor into uh, his calculation uh, the losses among Russian soldiers. He's willing to take far more losses than most rulers would, would be willing. He'd have made their peace by now because there obviously could be some uh, settlement there, uh, but uh, he... Uh, he regard he would regard that as um, an indication of weakness, and he wants to appear as a strong ruler, as Peter the Great, Peter the Great, and that's another kind of non non rational thing that the, the delight in domination for its own sake, right? Which we characteristic of a any tyrant, I think, through history now. There is the realist interpretation, as 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 you know, that however brutal uh, Putin, Russia was attempting to purchase, is attempting to purchase uh, security um, because of NATO, NATO expansion, and that this has been going on indeed since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, promises made in the Russian mind not honored. Uh, when Germany was reunified for NATO to move not one inch, as was the formulation at that time of the U.S. Secretary of State, James Baker. And John Mersheimer has, uh, as a kind of leading realist theorist of the University of Chicago, has captured quite a few views uh, or eyeballs, I suppose I should say, in his uh, frequent explanation of the of this war as eminently, totally foreseeable uh, because of a Russian need uh, to purchase uh, security, whether it was in Georgia before or whether now in Ukraine. And an understandable need. I don't think Mersheimer is an apologist for the war, but, but he views it as entirely understandable that Russia would behave in this way and predictable according to his realist theory of the world. Um, well, there's some, there's some tr uh, truth in, in that. Uh, the, um, uh, uh, so, so many aggressors claim that they are provoked. In fact, almost all aggressors do say that. They try and find some moral justification, which uh, is, is not just pure aggression. Um, and indeed, it's true what he alleges, what uh, the Kremlin alleges about NATO's behavior, but that that doesn't have to result in war. And um, uh, was Miss Heimer saying this before the war? Is yes, this, yes. Was, uh, no, he was. He did. Oh, he he's very uh, cl clear about that. He was on the record. I mean, George Kennan said in the mid nineteen nineties that. NATO expansion would be an utter disaster. The Russian bear would feel provoked, and you know, the cataclysm would come. Yes, yes, um, yes. But that's um, yeah. The, the plenty of states do not feel insecure. Uh, and do not need to invade any uh, adjacent states in order to uh, preserve their security. Uh, I think it would be... Uh, it, it's not explicable, explicable as um, um, a rational uh, uh, hypothesis that uh, NATO would invade Russia or anything like that, uh, so that what is going on is the sacred nation, uh, sorry, the sacred notion of security as involving uh, aggression. Um, so I think that you know, it's, the realism is, is very pessimistic in this. Yes, it embraces a tragic <laughs> perspective uh, was, on humankind. Yeah. But I think, you know, one of the most general points I make in this book is that war isn't all that common and that um, um, periods of peace enormously outweigh 
periods of war. And I, so now, most of the time, states are not insecure. Yeah. Well, let's examine the belly of the beast here. I talked to you from my home in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, in the United States of America, which uh, had involved itself in a fairly massive war, at least strike, in Iraq uh, under the President George W. Bush in 2003. The war that began in Afghanistan uh, just after the 911 attacks of 2001, and that initially seemed to be about getting rid of Osama bin Laden and his fellow travelers, as well as toppling the Taliban, and then went on for decade after decade until this uh, very kind of hastily staged uh, and really kind of embarrassing, as it turned out, with withdrawal in terms of the circumstances under which it was done under President Joe Biden in the first year of his office in 2021, we see, then we could go back further to Vietnam and so forth. Is there something in the American character or in the nature of the American imperium, if we could call it that, that predisposes to war? It's, uh, yes, I would extend it even further that the U.S. has not won a war of any significance since 1945. Korea was a draw, Vietnam a clear defeat, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, clear defeat. Uh, you've got to hang, hang on to Panama yeah. and Grenada. Well, we'll get... oh, okay, but we, it may be one thing that's so, bad at war, but are we predisposed to begin them? Um, well, what, what we have consistently underestimated it is the spirit of groups who would define themselves as national liberation movements. Uh -huh. And so uh, there was the, uh, and the failure to perceive the kind of uh, uh, conflicts going on in uh, poorer countries. So in a way, backing the wrong side in Vietnam, if you want to be, uh, have the victor on your side, Right. Yes. Um, and, and if I could just say, to give the realists their, their due, uh, the, the Hans Morgenthau, kind of a preeminent re realist of, of the, the post-World War II era, was a very early critic of uh, the war in Vietnam. He thought it would fail. He thought it was being waged for the wrong reasons and, and so forth. Yes. Yes. Well, it was being waged for um, kind of in, in, in a... If you like global reason, uh -huh. the cause between democratic capitalism right. and communism, the domino uh, theory, right? And uh, with no analysis at all of the local conditions and what these movements uh, actually yeah. are, one could might even say total I ignorance of local conditions. Yeah, some absolutely. And uh, I think it's rather ironic that I assume right now American diplomats are saying to the Israelis, what are you going to do afterwards? <laughs> this is ironic because Iraq and, and Afghanistan, well, Afghanistan is a little different, but Iraq is certainly yeah. the case. Yeah. Well, you have to learn, Iraq. but one has, one does have to learn or should learn from one's mistakes. Even the, there is the irony, but nevertheless, they should should they not be saying that to the Israelis? Yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. And you can say it more easily, you can see it more easily uh, in other cases than your own case. So I've no there will be a repeat at some point of uh, American failure somewhere else. Uh, well, we struck Syria, I believe. It might have been a fairly pinprick kind of a thing, just as we're speaking. Yes, I haven't read too much about it, but America remains primed, I think, for war, some forms of, of, you know, military violence in this region, you know, as we speak. Yes. Yeah. I mean, how, I don't want to be overly pessimistic about the whole thing, but the, at least in the current circumstances, the prospect for war seems fairly bright. Yes. If you want to put it that way, yes. Well, just in a, in a predictive, the, in a predictive of sort world. of a way. Of course, we are forget, forgetting, we're neglecting the biggest war going on at the moment, which is in the Horn of Africa, between uh, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and others. 
which has very high casualties and receives no attention in the in, in the West, uh, or almost no attention in the West. So it's not the okay. Middle East. Well, let me let me. Uh, are not the only places, but most the... of the world is not. Yeah. In, well, that's good that you mentioned that, and we should, and it should be explained. That what, what is it in your mind that um, goes to the root causes of that particular war in Africa? Um, I think it's there's a certain amount of talk among people who study uh, Africa uh, that the, um, the colonial powers didn't pay enough attention to geography when defining their, their various spheres of influence and that they, and the nation states that were uh, founded after independence they had no natural borders. And I don't think that has proved to be true except in the Horn of Africa uh, where um, territorial disputes were already happening among the imperial powers between the Italians, the British, and at that point, in that period of time, Ethiopia was a, a contending empire in that region. So the uncertainty about boundaries, the rival claims, uh, are very marked there. And as they were not in the rest of Africa, because the the colonial powers amicably divided up the most of the rest of the continent uh, between themselves and those, so that has not led to territorial disputes across the rest of Africa. Uh, and, uh, it's you have the same thing at work in Latin America, where. Um, the post-independence state, independent from Spain, that is, they all have boundaries which had already earlier been either treasury boundaries under Spanish rule uh, or uh, judicial court uh, boundaries. And so the, um, uh, the main boundaries between the post-colonial states uh, were fairly clear. The only places it wasn't was in jungles and mountains, which had never been surveyed. So, I think that you know, you know, the kind of continuity of stability of boundaries is important. Yeah, and I think as we begin to wrap up, one point that strikes me from your book, which I think is wonderful, and I recommend everyone to to pick up and and read, is that. Um, we're so familiar with war in in as Americans as I can say as an American, uh, because you know I'm 66 years old now. And I've seen over my lifetime any number of wars that America has been involved in. But suppose I were a native of Brazil, I don't think I would feel that way. And Brazil is not an insignificant country, and it doesn't seem to have developed this capacity uh, in any kind of large scale way for war. Um, other countries, including in Europe, maybe Italy, I mean, they seem to have, if they had a capacity for war at one time, it seems to be pretty well e exhausted. Uh, Germany, I don't know. I'd actually be curious about your thoughts about Germany as we wrap up, since it appears to be in a process of some form of rearmament um, that may be related to the conflict in Ukraine, but perhaps it's not only that. So these seem like puzzles. I don't think we have to solve the puzzles that, you know, we don't see equal predispositions for war across the planet. No, well, uh, uh, of course, the there is an after effect of serious warfare uh, through, through history and recent history too, that, you know, um, after the great wars of religion in the 17th century, the, the wars of the next two, the next century and a half uh, were rather gentlemanly wars, smaller numbers of troops. Gentlemanly wars. Yes. Sounds like at a, uh, a PG Woodhouse or something. And, and, and you're not committing atrocities. You, you're yes. re releasing um, uh, prisoners. Uh, uh -huh. And then you have the Napoleonic Wars. There's a period afterwards where the con Congress of Vienna and the and the powers are trying hard to keep the peace and to repress the 
the, the leftist uh, revolutionaries. Um, and after World War II, uh, you have a, a, a period where uh, war among the great powers is uh, it's, it, it is unthinkable. And that's especially true for Germany and Japan, which were demilitarized and which have done extremely well in that state. Yeah, and Japan so, too. I should We haven't even talked about Japan or, or China for that matter. So, and Germany is a great power without having a credible uh, armed force. Um, well, it's still it's, controversial. It's, it's, it's still the, the most powerful, yeah, yes. military alliance but, in the history of the world. But its contribution is not all that great. It's less no, it's than France, though it's a much more prosperous country. Well, maybe it's it made a it, rational it, decision to to hide behind the shield that's offered by the power that does spend an enormous amount of money on military resources. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, uh, well, I do argue peace is more rational than war. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Anyway, if it can be one thing that I, uh, we haven't talked about it uh, is uh, my argument that uh, wars are made by rulers and their entourages, and they are most never uh, made by the people as a whole because the people are not interested in foreign affairs. They don't have material interests at stake, and they just. They have no sources of information alternative to what their rulers are telling them about the threat that this, this um, other power um, poses. And so, and this is true in democracies as well as authoritarian repair. Right now in the United States, the um, two, uh, 2001 authorization to use military force independently of Congress was granted to the president. And since then, there have been uh, 41 cases where the president has uh, has sent in uh, troops or bombed or, or whatever without consulting Congress mm -hmm. in 17 different countries. So it's, you know, democracies are not a solution to war and peace. They are to many domestic issues, but not to war and peace. Right. We are captives to the rulers, as you say. Well, why don't we leave it on that note? I thank you very much, uh, Michael, for uh, joining me today. This is Paul Starobin, and this is uh, America and Beyond on the New Books Network. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much.